Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of The Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Today is a real treat. It's part of a three-part series that we are going to do. I say we because I have Dr. Penelope Shu, one of our coaches here at The Happy MD, and Dr. Pam Pappas. Both of them are MDs and ICF certified coaches that work to help the doctors that come in through the happymd.com for help with overwhelm and burnout and optimizing their practice. And what we're going to talk about here for these next three podcasts is suicide, specifically preventing physician suicide. And we're going to do a three-part series here. Today is going to be how you can recognize your own suicidal ideation, how you can recognize when you're at a place where this may be turning into something more significant with larger implications than just being overstressed. The next podcast, we're going to talk about if you, as a friend of a doctor, how can you tell that they may be having suicidal ideation and how do you respond to that? And then the third one is going to be specifically for physician coaches. What happens when you're having a conversation with a coaching client and all of a sudden the conversation turns to something that is tipping into suspicious for are actually true about suicidal ideation. So today we're going to talk about the first person experience. And let me just set the stage a little bit, our philosophy here. Um, I believe the coaches that, excuse me, physicians are light workers. All of us stood at a fork in the road way back in the day when our choice was to go to medical school or do basically anything else. We decided to go to medical school because it was actually a calling it marked us as someone who needs to have meaning and purpose as a helper and a healer in our professional life. And it's when we aren't able to make the difference that we want to make that our heart breaks, <laughs> especially if all it is is EMR and other crap like that that gets in the way of you making a difference with your patients. And that's when burnout leaks in around the edges. Burnout is a combination of physical exhaustion, cynical and sarcastic. What's the use? And in itself, it is not a mental illness. It's a normal response to overwhelm in a light worker. However, there are complications of burnout that can go deeper into, for lack of a better word, what medicine is considered to be psychopathology. So depression, suicide, alcohol and drug addiction are all known complications of burnout. And what we want to talk about is how you can tell when you're tipping into the, the most significant of the depression complications, which would be suicidal ideation and suicide. And then we're also going to have a little bit of discussion about it's not always a mental illness. It may actually be a spiritual, a piece of a spiritual journey. <laughs> we're going to talk about that a little bit too. So I have Dr. Penelope Shu and I have Dr. Pam Pappas with us. And I'm just going to toss this out here. Where do the two of you want to begin? Um, I mean, you know, if today is the personal 
aspect of things. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I'm always happy to share. And I, this has sort of become part of my, my introduction when I meet groups of people and, and even when I meet new clients of, of just sort of telling them and sharing my story. So I don't know if Pam, if you want to, if you want to go first or if, you, or if you have anything else you want to start with. I don't usually bring this right out with my clients immediately. My story of suicidal ideation and, and all of that. Certainly, I talk with them about my burnout experiences, multiple, and digging my way out of those and what I wish that I would have had available to me during those times. But because of the subject matter of this and my personal experience, I was willing to say a piece about about that. Well, and let me also say that one of the things that we teach here is we teach a lot of, of wellness leaders, people who lead wellness in their organization. One of the key principles is tell your own story first. If you have a story of burnout and you're a wellness leader, you have a story of suicidal ideation and you're a wellness leader, the most powerful thing you can do inside your organization is actually tell your story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so what we decided to do, what Dr. Shu and Dr. Pafis decided to do was to tell their stories. That would be now. <laughs> okay. I can, I can start if that's what, if okay, that would great. be easier. So, so great. So the thing is that I would really want to convey is that things are going on inside us all the time that may look very different on the surface and how other people see us. And we know that physicians are extremely well-versed in trying to look more together than they actually feel because of this mandate, never show so-called weakness, do not have pain, do not have needs, basically. And the code of silence around depression and suicidality is extremely strong in our culture at large, but I think even more so in physicians because there's a lot of implications. And so and so what I'll share is my own personal experience that is many years ago now. And I was highly busy in working in a in a psychiatry department at a major medical school. And my marriage was going south. This this was very, very hard for me. It it coalesced with a long time history of family trauma and alcoholism and uh, domestic violence, which I had been exposed to as a kid. And I, I think that my particular trajectory in becoming a physician, light worker, like Dyke was, you were just saying, had to do with wanting to heal my family, my quote, fucked up family and very deeply suffering family. So when my marriage was starting to unravel, this became absolutely horrible for me. And the thing is that during this time, I was in twice a week psychotherapy with a psychiatrist who had agreed to see, I was a chief resident and an um, early faculty member by that point. And he was like a half hour away from our department. So there, the confidentiality was there, plus the know-how was there. He was a good guy and an excellent listener and a therapist. And 
my then husband was upset with me for seeing him because he didn't understand that that I I was unraveling my lifetime trauma and trying to deal with it so that I can deal with this marriage that's not going so well. So the thing was that I was so depressed and so feeling unworthy and feeling so ashamed of all of that, that I started saving up tricyclic antidepressants from the medicine closet. This wasn't when we had to the tricyclics, you know, those will definitely kill you. And so, the, and of course, there were also some SSRIs too, but, you know, if you get the nortriptyline, uh, you know, and the amitriptylines and you store enough of those and you, and you take them, you will cause yourself an arrhythmia and die. And I was collecting them for months with a plan. And I did not tell my psychiatrist that this was going on. Why did I not? I was ashamed for not being able to make any further inroads into the marriage, not able to write papers that I needed to write for my faculty stuff, just feeling slammed on about every side. And I think that I was basically not trusting anybody at that time, even this well-meaning physician who was trying to help me. And at home, the the man I was married to, he just didn't want to hear it. I, I was telling him about what had happened to me growing up and what I was trying to equalize or try, trying to integrate, trying to come to terms with, come to some kind of peace with so that I wouldn't be so triggery and yelly and all those things that he didn't like. And the problem was, for me, the way that I was seeing myself was a total failure. Even though on the outside, I was actually serving people. I was helping them through their suicidal stuff, through their addiction stuff. And I I had lots and lots of uh, medical student and resident patients and some faculty member patients. So what I was doing in my work life was such a disconnect from how I felt in my personal life was really, really jarring. And I thought that the only way out that I had would be to off myself. There was a particular night that I had a especially horrible interaction, finding my husband with another person, another woman. And I was so devastated with that, that that I thought, okay, that's that's going to be the night. So I'm driving away from the house and a little voice comes inside me. Go see your friends that are kind of on the way. It's a couple of mine. One one was a a co-faculty member in my department and one was his wife. And I, I don't know how I did it, but I turned the car and I went to their house (laughs) and they answered the door and they let me come in the house and just talk to them about what was going on. Even then, I didn't tell them I had been thinking about killing myself. Just this horrible thing that had happened and how outraged and how wounded and how ashamed and all the stuff that I was. And it was not until several years later that I 
called up my friend and said, you know what? You remember that night? And he says, yeah. I said, well, you know what? You and you and your wife saved my life. You probably didn't know it. He says, well, yeah, I knew you were pretty down, but I didn't know it was that far down. And I said, you know, I really owe you for being willing to hear me, even if I was talking in ways that you couldn't relate to or didn't understand, or I wasn't explaining myself very well, but I was really freaked out. And I just want to thank you for doing that. And I'm convinced that had they not been home, y'all might not be seeing me now. But that little voice inside me was really, really, really important. We all have one. And I think one of our best things is to try to help people learn to hear that and to heed that. Thank you, Pam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for telling your story. And I think, yes, thank you. Penny. I, I, I think of the magic bubble, right? The magic bubble. Of course they were there that night. <laughs> probably, I was lucky. <laughs> probably watching reruns of Seinfeld or something they felt okay about turning off just to talk to you. Now, what I want to do is that was marvelous. And I want to just put in a little public service announcement because we know when if you are hearing stories like this and they resonate with your experience, dear listener, we don't want you to be left in the lurch here. So I'm going to just let you know that if you're recognizing yourself in this story and would like to do something about it, the physician support line, staff 24-7 with psychiatrists, volunteer free is 888-409-0141, 888-409-0141. So what we're doing here today is sharing stories of our own struggles so that you can understand that you're not alone. And Pam went first because she's super brave. <laughs> Penny's super brave too, and now it's her turn. Okay. All right. So my story is also many years ago. It actually started in medical school. For those of you who who don't know me, I, I am a coach. I'm also a physician and I'm also an actor. And I had gotten into an acting program and medical school at the same time. I had applied to both. And after what felt like, you know, World War Three in my house, um, I went to medical school. And as soon as I got there, like, day one of convocation or whatever, the white coat, all of that, everybody's like giddy with excitement. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? And I was miserable. So I knew the first day of medical school that I had made the wrong choice. But I was there, and you know, what am I going to do? And and obviously it's always an honor to get into medical school. And, you know, I was like, all right, let me just see how this all goes. I can probably tough it through. But um, I was quite miserable. And um, so after my first year of med school, I decided to run off to LA and crash on all my friends' couches uh, who were out there already, you know, pursuing an acting career. And um, so I I did that for the summer. I just kind of got my hands on whatever I could do, like student projects and low budget films and music videos and all this kind of stuff. And it was great. And it really kind of like rejuvenated me and made me kind of feel whole again. And I was like, okay, I feel like if I can kind of keep this balance, maybe I can get through medical school. So I went back for second year. And when I got back, everyone started like sort of tiptoeing around me and sort of like talking to me like I, you know, had, I don't know, like, like I belonged in a padded room, basically, you know, they're like, how are you feeling? 
Are you okay? Oh, you're back this year. And I was like, what in the world is happening? And I was like, yeah, I just went away for the summer. Like, what is this? And nobody would tell me what was going on. And everybody was sort of the, and I finally got somebody in my class to tell me what was going on. And basically what had happened was the rumor had gone around that I had actually had a psychotic break at the end of our first year. And that in my psychosis, I thought I was an actor and I had flown out to LA and had, oh this, my. I had this wild and crazy, you know, psychotic episode thinking I was an actor and I somehow made it back to school, but was I still psychotic? Did I spend some time in a padded room? Like what was going on with, with Penny? And obviously I was mortified and I like stopped speaking to most of my class and I had very few friends after that, but that was my first sort of introduction or what I interpreted as my introduction into the way medicine was going to react to sort of taking a, a path less traveled or not traveled, right? Like anything outside of, you know, lab research, bench research, volunteering, la da da, anything in the world of creativity was a sign of psychosis. I remember deciding I'm shutting all of this down. I'm shutting down acting. I'm shutting down performing. I'm never going to do it again, let alone talk about it. And certainly never with anyone within the medical institution. And I'm also going to remove myself from all these people who now think I'm a wackadoo and I don't want to even talk to them. So I just kind of like isolated myself for the rest of medical school. I mean, I still had friends, but like a very small knit group of friends. And that was it. I just didn't want to deal or talk to or interact with anyone. And then you go to residency and obviously it's even worse, right? Like the hours are longer and whatever. And as much as I had sort of tried to suppress everything and be like, okay, that life is over. I'm not doing that anymore. I just kept dreaming about LA and like pilot season. And I would like secretly be looking for auditions and like, what could I sneak out to? And again, not, not tell anybody but it got harder and harder to kind of like compartmentalize and shove it down um, because the worst I felt in residency, just like the exhaustion and, and the mental toll of, you know, watching children die and all this kind of stuff, the worse I felt there, the more I would dream about acting. And then the more I try to shut that down and, and it just sort of became this vicious cycle of like never being happy. And that the little things that would make me happy I immediately had to shut down. And again, I didn't dare say a word to anyone, you know, forget my co-residents, forget my program director, you know, nobody, not my parents, no one. And so similar to you, Pam, like you just like, what do you do with all of that? You know? And, and I was like, whatever, 26 at the time or something, you know, like who can handle all of that? And, and without any sort of avenue to work it out with anyone you just kind of start to think it's you, you know, like I really did start to think like, maybe they were right in medical school. Maybe I am like literally crazy, you, you know, maybe I, I don't have what it takes. Maybe I am like schizophrenic or multiple personality, you know, like maybe that is me because nobody around me has these issues, or at least I thought, right. Again, to your point, like the wall of silence, you know, so I didn't see anybody else struggling beyond just the physical exhaustion of residency. I didn't see anybody struggling with these sort of like, who am I? Is this the road for me kind of questions? And so I didn't know what to do with it. And it just got worse and worse. And again, there's always that fateful night, right? Like there, <laughs> I remember it was December in New York and I was in the ER. And so when you're on the ER rotation, you know, you get 12 hours on and 12 hours off, 12 hours on, 12 hours off for like weeks on end. 
And I remember during that time, you know, it's December, so it gets dark at like four o'clock. You know, December is always super busy for pediatrics. I would like get home at whatever it was, like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And I remember many nights, like not even making it. And I lived in a studio. I couldn't even make it to my bed. I would just kind of collapse on the living room floor in my scrubs and just cry myself to sleep. And then I would wake up like eight hours later, take off the scrub shower, put on a new set of scrubs and go right back to the hospital and rinse and repeat for days and days and days. And like, like literally my bed was untouched and I was just, I could not even make it 200 feet to my floor without just crumping in a pile of tears. And one night I was like driving home and I was like, fuck it. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I, instead of going home this way, I went this way, which was the um, the Throgs Neck Bridge, which is a bridge near my house where I was living. And I was like, I think this is the best idea. Like, this is, this is going to make me feel better. If I just don't have to go home and cry and get up tomorrow, then everything will be better, right? I will feel better. You know, the residency will be fine and they'll have another resident take my place who will be 100% dedicated and all will be well. And I remember staring at the water, you know, as it was going by under the bridge in my weird state of mind, trying to figure out how fast the water was going, right? So that I could figure out like how far would I float by morning? And like, if I took off all my clothes, like how long would it take for hypothermia to kick in, (laughs) given my weight and the temperature of the water? Like I was doing all this math, essentially to make sure that I would drift away so that my parents would never find me and, you know, and like no one would ever. And I was like, okay, take off the ID and, you know, take off all your clothes. So there's no identifying information. Like I had the whole thing planned, ready to go. And so I got back in my car and I'm like, you know, taking off the ID and I'm, I'm doing all of this. And then very similar to your story, Pam, like I heard a tiny little voice, but it wasn't inside of me. It was like outside of the car. And it was just this very soft voice at first. And I'm just like ignoring it. And I'm like, all right, you know, put my shoes over there. Da, 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 da. And the voice is getting louder and louder. And I finally kind of pay attention to it. And I recognize it as the voice of my grandmother who had passed on during medical school. And now this is where I'm going to cry. She was always so proud of me because she was allowed to go to the third grade in terms of education. Um, in her family. And at that time, she was the most educated woman in her entire line of women, right? She got to go to the third grade. So the fact that I went to high school, and then I went to college, and then I went to medical school, like she was so proud of me. I think they like celebrated when I got it when I um, got into medical school, like they, they did like the firecrackers in her village, you know, like it was a really big deal. And she was always like, you know, this is why I came to this country, right? Like, so that you could do all of this. And so it was her voice, of course, who was basically just saying over and over again, not like this and not today, not like this and not today. And it was just over and over and louder and louder. And I'm just like trying to ignore it. And finally I got so mad and I was like, well, if it's not like this and it's not today, then what the fuck is it? You know, what am I supposed to do, grandma? And I just sat there and that's when I finally just like bawled my eyes out, you know, and, and then I was like, okay, I actually don't want to do this. You, you know, I don't want to jump off of a bridge in the middle of December in New York. And I just, I, I just kept asking my grandmother, like, what am I supposed to do? You, you know, if it's not like this and it's not today 
and I don't want to bring your whole family shame. And I really genuinely don't want to do this. And what am I supposed to do? And somehow in all of that, it, it just came to me that like, I would just have to quit. You know, I was, I, I was either going to have to quit my life or I was going to have to quit medicine. And as much as I tried to hold it together and ignore acting and all that, da, 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 like clearly that path was only going to lead me one way, which was going to be to jump off the bridge. So I was like, all right, I tried it the good girl way, right? The good little Asian student way. And it's, it's going to kill me. It's legitimately going to kill me. And so the next day I went to my residency director and I said, I quit. <laughs> and I don't think he was that surprised. And he was like, well, just finish out the year. And then, you know, at least you'll have your first year and you can moonlight or whatever. And then you'll always have a spot and la da 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 da. And I never told him about the bridge. I never told anybody about the bridge until I started doing these types of talks. Honestly, I had, I had actually forgotten about the bridge until I was prepping my first speaking engagement. Um, and it was for a bunch of college students. And I was like, oh, you know, like, well, how can I relate to these young kids who are so idealistic and like <laughs> their life is about to blow up? And then it all kind of like came back to me. But I had blocked it out for like over a decade. But yeah, so I quit. I quit my residency. And then, you know, the rest is history. I took, I took, I quit thinking I would never come back to medicine. And I like did acting full time and I, you know, dedicated myself to it. But weirdly, about nine months after that, I, I actually was temping somewhere and I was temping, where was it? I, I can't remember where I was temping. But anyway, my boss at the time was every morning, she'd be like, this is life and death, people. This is life and death. We got to get those numbers done and da, 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 da. And we got to get this report done by 2 p.m. Life and death, like every day. And at some point I was like, actually, no, not. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, done that, and this is uh, not it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, actually, I know what life and death is. And out of this whole pod of people, I'm probably the only one equipped to actually know how to do something if it was a life and death situation. And maybe that's actually special. You know, maybe that's actually a good thing that I'm not just, you know, an office rat. I'm not, quote unquote, just an actor. Like, maybe it's okay that I have this special set of skills and maybe I shouldn't quote unquote be wasting it doing PowerPoint and and auditioning for student films, you know, like maybe I should actually go back to what God, you know, has gifted me that not everybody gets that gift. And so it was a weird thing wherein I had to leave medicine to actually find my way back to it. And that was a very long story. And I apologize. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're both so brave. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm reminded of the hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your own private star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and Pam, you were saying, you were saying that there are actually some statistics about how common this experience is. Can you, can you please repeat those for us? Well, you know, there's different research studies that have been done but you know the of course we know that that burnout itself is at least 63% of physicians will check all those those three qualifiers that Maslach talked about but in terms of quote mental illness depending on where you are in your training i've seen statistics 
looking at third year medical students with suicidal ideation prevalence of 50%. I've I've seen some of those. I've seen interns, you know, that they are even higher. Not that they immediately are going to do something that they're they're going to go jump off the bridge or that they are going to take an overdose of medications, but having at least passing thoughts or to think, you know, if, if I have to do this any longer, I am going to, that this is so horrible. I can't see any way out. I just want to reduce the suffering yeah. in, in some way. And the other piece is having lost hope that there is any possibility of it feeling any better ever. So, so I'm not going to give you a bunch of numbers because they're all across the board and those papers are available. But the sense of loss of hope is what I really want to drive home here. And the feeling that you were talking about, Penny, of, of isolating yourself and knowing that what you deeply wanted, what was really important to you, seemed to be incomprehensible by the people that were around you. And that's something that I experienced as well. If, if you were to try to utter to some of these people, what it was that you really wanted, that they would think that you were psychotic. When actually you're, God, you're gifted is the darn truth. And a lot of those people that were your classmates or uh, your residents or whatever, they have creativity inside them too, maybe differently showing up than being an actor or actress. But Creativity is absolutely essential in medicine as well. And so I, I'm not surprised that they would shut you down because they don't want to have this rumbling around inside themselves either. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and another pattern that I recognize in my coaching clients is that oftentimes, all the time, there is there are things going on at the same time that have nothing to do with their medical practice or their medical education. There's family of origin issues. There's you're having a, a similar sensation to something that happened previously in your life that was negative. There's there's other things going on. I'm also impressed that each of you were nudged, <laughs> nudged back by a friend or a, a, a past friend, <laughs> a, a friend or a, a, a grandma, the voice of an internalized voice of a grandma. So one of the things that the programming of your medical education and the process of being doctor will do is isolate you. What if they find out? Never show weakness. That's some of the prime programming. And I want everybody who's listening to know what we've just listened to are stories of great doctors <laughs> who are willing to tell their stories here for us because this is an incredibly common experience that many of us go through. So, I would encourage you to tell your story if you're listening to us right now, that hotline, if you'd like some support. And again, I'm giving it to you so you can do something right now if you feel that you need to. The physician support hotline is 888-409-0141, 888-409-0141. And what we're going to do in the next piece of this mini series, part two, is talk about how to be an ally in this situation, meaning what do you do if one of your friends knocks on your door? 
late at night says they want to talk. Or if you're having a casual conversation and you get the hair stand up on the back of your neck, what might you do to reach out to your colleague who may be feeling just like Dr. Pappas and Dr. Shu were when they were in the midst of these struggles? And now let's go ahead and put a bow on this. What would each of you like to say or do or ask to be complete for today? Well, I just want to say thank you for being willing to hear my story. And I am honored to uh, listen to Penny's. And uh, that's, a, that's a story I had never heard her tell before. So I'm very grateful that I had a chance to listen. Thank you. Um, and, and likewise, I don't think I've ever heard your story before either, Pam. I think I just want to say that, like, it's so common. Um, I think it is far more common than we think. I think the isolation is the thing that keeps us from acknowledging it within ourselves, of getting support, of sharing, of of leaning on anyone. And so I think, you know, my hope would be that people can hear our stories and realize like, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean, you know, you're incapable of doing this job. It doesn't mean any of that, right? It means like we all suffer. <laughs> Life is hard being a physician, especially in this day and age. Um, is incredibly hard. And it just means you're human. And, you know, I think we should start looking at it that way versus like a sign of psychopathology necessarily. I mean, it is, but it is also a very normal human experience. And so, you know, I, I just hope that more people can see it that way and, and see these stories, not like, <gasps> what, you know, but more like, yep, there's another one, you know, and can we just sort of normalize it and talk about it more and and lean on each other and not isolate from each other. Yeah. And always have yeah. a friend or two where you can tell the truth and maybe they predate your medical, your, your dive into the medical education universe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and I have not heard either of your stories beginning to end like this. So thank you very much for allowing me to be a witness. Uh, thank you, Dr. Pam Pappas. Thank you, Dr. Penelope Shu. And uh, we're going to wrap this up and uh, watch for part two. Our uh, podcasts come out uh, every week. But if you're looking at the library that you can listen to part two right now, it'll be all about how to be an ally in this situation to a friend who may be feeling this way. And you're getting a little hint that that's what's going on. So Dyke Drummond here at the home of the happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast until all three of us see you again on the next episode. Keep breathing and have a great rest of your day. Aloha. <laughs> there you go. Mahalo. <laughs>